I mean, go figure that you would walk into a church and they're going to talk about the Bible. And so we're going to do that today. Does it sound like a good idea, right? Yeah. And so um, as a uh, as a reminder to kind of get caught up of where we are, um, we just finished our uh, a long sermon series on Habakkuk. And I know many of you are sad to see him go. We kind of became like a close friend. And I think we, we found we had a lot in common with Habakkuk, right? We did. And that's good. So we always want to remember that. And as I mentioned last week, that we have a new series that will take us through the end of the year. So November and December, because um, I, I didn't say it earlier, but happy November, everybody. And you can believe it, right? It's November. And before you know it, it'll be January. No, I don't want to skip, skip over all of the, the good stuff we're looking forward to. But, you know, as we know, th- this time of year, everything starts to seem to speed up, right? And we got an hour back of sleep last night somehow. Was that good? And that you feeling good? So here's what I expect since you got an extra hour of sleep. I expect wide eyes and, you know, I have a, I had this teacher in grade school, my fifth grade teacher. We'd walk into class every day and she'd always say, okay, put your thinking caps on. I was like, I don't know what that meant, but she meant to just, we're going to focus and pay attention. And so we begin a new series today uh, and it'll take us through the end of the year. And uh, it is simply called this. It's called Epic. And then here is the tagline. It is essential theology. So we are exploring essential theology as revealed in the greatest story ever told. And here's what we're doing. So we are going to look at the essential doctrines or sets of belief. That's what it means. The essential theological points that we believe and trust in here and hold dear. And that go back through Orthodox Christianity, through the ancient church. And we're going to look at these theological concepts and see why are they important to us, but in the context of telling the story of God in the Bible. Because when we read the scripture, it can really read like a story from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we look at these different concepts of theology, theology simply means to study God, or means God, word, theology, theology, it means to study God. Right, And so there's all these different aspects of studying God and his attributes and what that means. So we're going to look at all of the essential doctrines or theology of the, the Christian church, but in the context of a story. And so each week we will be continuing on our story. And so make sure you don't miss any of them so you can make sure you're in the flow of the story. And every week I'll kind of catch us up as where we are. Because there is a natural flow, I believe, to these things that we're going to look at and study. And you'll, you'll see as we progress through. Because as we look at these, these important beliefs, uh, it will help us to fill in the storyline and to keep everything in context. And you're going to hear me say that a lot this morning, that when we look at the Bible, when we read the Bible, we are to do it always in context. And so that is the, the title of our sermon series, Epic, that we're going to explore essential theology as revealed in the greatest story ever told, and that is the Bible. Uh, and so here is uh, some of the things that we're going to cover. Actually, these are all the topics that we're going to cover. And we're going to look at uh, bibliology, and that's today. That's simply the study of the Bible. That's kind of easy one, right? Um, paterology, which is also called theology proper, which is very simply the study of God the Father, or the attributes of God. Okay? Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at angelology and demonology. Can you, anybody guess what those are? 
right? What we're going to look at, because those actually are important. They're not ancillary. Those are important um, theological concepts. Anthropology, the study of us, of humans, and why God created us, being created in the image of God. Hamartiology, the study of sin. Can you see that connection, sin and hamartiology? No, right? We'll look at that when we get there. And that's what that is. Soteriology is the study of salvation. What does the Bible teach about salvation? Christology, and of course, all that it says about Jesus Christ and the incarnate God. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And then, of course, finally, eschatology, which is very simply the study of the future, how everything is going to end. But in order to get there, you've got <clears> to <throat> sit through all the other ones, okay? So if you want to know how it ends, <clears throat> yes, you can read ahead and you look at Revelation if you want. Okay, but um, some of you have probably already done that, which is good. And so there is a flow to this, though, because we're going to start with bibliology today. What does the Bible say? And then we're going to look at, over the course of a few weeks, the main characters in our story. Who is God? Who is the Holy Spirit? Who are we as uh, as God's creation? Right. And then in every good story, there's always a problem that enters in. And the problem is called sin. But then God rescues us. He promises a redemption. And he says there is a solution to the sin problem. And that is salvation. But how does salvation come to us? Of course, that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's timed perfectly because Christology will fall on the Sunday right before Christmas Eve and Christmas. So, of course, we want to look at the incarnate God at Christmas time. And then as we see what Christ has done for us We will then see, what did he do? He said he would build his church, and that's us. And then, of course, how does it all end? And that's eschatology, all right? Sounds like fun, right? It will be, I promise you, okay? It's going to be fast-moving and fast-paced. So as my teacher used to say, you put your thinking caps on, you drink your extra coffee, and you do all that to come because we're going to look at a lot. There's going to be a lot of good information. But again, it's all in a context of the story so we can, we can keep it together and follow along. Does that make sense? All right, so let's dig right in. And so where do we begin? Any good story has the same kind of common elements that any kind of grand epic story that's ever been written really comes from the elements of the Bible, the greatest epic ever told. Would you agree with me on that? So every like favorite grand epic movie or novel that you have read has all these elements where everything started out good and there's sort of this perfect scenario, right? And there's usually heroes involved, but then, then something bad happens. There's an evil villain, right? And then the rest of the story is sort of this battle between good and evil to get restoration back to what was good. And then you see how things, you know, how things happen and the hero rides off into the sunset, right? It all comes from the Bible story. All of those grand epic elements, they come from our Bible. And we're going to look at that and see what those elements look like and how they carry us through all these different theological uh, elements. And so, whenever you're telling a story, where do you begin? Or let's say you're going to see a play, right? The first thing we want to know is, well, who wrote this? Before we even get introduced to all of the characters... We want to know, well, where does this story come from? And so that's why we're going to start with bibliology, the study of the Bible itself. Even before we look at theology proper, which is also called paterology, or just simply the study of God, because everything starts with God, right? 
for our context, let's start with the Bible. Where did we get it? Who wrote it? And when? How many people did write it? Can we trust it? Is it true? Like, is it something that we should value and, and read every day? And and what does this mean? I mean, it's an ancient text over thousands of years, and so does it have any application for today? I mean, these are important questions that we ask and that are answered in the study of the Bible, bibliology. All right, does that make sense? So that's some of the questions we're going to look at today because we talk about great doctrines of the Christian church, the things like inerrancy. Are there any errors in the Bible? Inspiration. Who wrote it, man or God or both? How about, um, how about things like interpretation? How do we interpret the Bible? Doesn't everybody just get to interpret it however they want? And what about all the translations? There's all different translations that we hear about. What are those all about? I'm going to answer all those questions today and look at all of that stuff in the context of the story. So what I'd like to do is it just it's going to take 30 seconds, um, but I can't promise you that. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the story of the Bible, and then we're going to look at all of those things I mentioned. Wait. Let's stop before we even get into the basics of the storyline and the plot line and the characters. Then where did this story even come from? And who's the author? And who wrote it? And what does that mean to us? Because you know what, church? That's where we have to start. Because if we're going to put any faith and trust in what it says, we need to start with, well, who wrote it? Where does it come from? Can we trust it? And then everything else flows from there. See, there's a natural flow to every one of these topics we're going to cover week after week. So, if you read the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that's the first book to the last book, to the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see we learn about God who has always been, and then his creation, Adam and Eve, there is sin, there is judgment, there's a promise of a redeemer, there's Noah and the flood, remember that story? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God calls Abraham, and then he has sons and a grandson. They go into Egypt due to a famine. They, they turn out to be slaves in Egypt. Moses comes and rescues them. God sends them. Moses gives them the law. God gives them the law through Moses. He leads them into the promised land. That begins this cycle of disobedience by the Jewish people, this people of Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's this cycle of disobedience, repentance, forgiveness, blessing. There's judges, kings, prophets. There's silence for 400 years. Then there's Jesus, our hero. Then there's disciples and the church, and that's us. Jesus rescues us. He comes back for us. Then there's a great time of tribulation and trouble. Then Jesus finally returns to earth as judge and sets up his kingdom, and he sets it up for a final battle and then ushers us into eternity. That's the whole story from beginning to end. There's so much we can't cover, of course, But let's look at some important topics this morning. So, the study of the Bible, bibliology. There are 66 books in your Bible, if you did not know that. Divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it is one cohesive story. You need the Old Testament to understand the New Testament, so we don't neglect either. It was written by about 40 different authors, most of whom did not know each other. 40 different people writing these books. They didn't know each other. Over the span of about 1,500 years. You ever consider that? 
The Bible that you read, hopefully you read it every day, was written over about a 1,500-year period. That's a long time, isn't it? I mean, we think about, we think about like the, the history of our country. We've been around for a few hundred years. This is 1,500 years that these books were written. It's written in different environments. All those 40 writers, they're written by people in different environments from different walks of life. Like some of them were fishermen and some of them were kings and leaders and wise people. There's history in the Bible. There's poetry. There's law. There's biographies. There's prophecy. There's a lot in there, isn't it? It's not just one kind of literature. All different kinds of literature. And that's how it's actually compiled. Do you ever think about that? The Bible, in many ways... I mean, it's chronological in a bigger picture, but it's really not laid out chronologically in how the stories and how the Bible the, the books were written or how they play out in the chronological history of time. But they are basically grouped by kinds of literature. So there is the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch it's called, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses wrote that, and on and on. So there's the law, there's the prophets, There's the poetry of the Psalms, and there's wisdom of the Proverbs. Then, of course, we have the Gospels in the New Testament. That's like a biography of Jesus, right? And then we see there's some history, Acts. We went through the book of Acts as a church, the history of the church. And then there's all those writings of Paul and the other disciples and apostles to kind of fill us in on where we are and what's our mission, church. See, and then there's Revelation, which ties together some of the books of the Old Testament and says this is how it's all going to play out. It's got a beginning and a middle and an end, and there's so much in there. But there is one harmonious message through it all. So the first uh, issue that I want to look at, the first key doctrine, which is really like set of beliefs, that's what doctrine really means, uh, of the Christian faith about the Bible and some important considerations regarding our use of it. The first thing I want to look at is inspiration. It's a great place to start. What does it mean, church? When you hear those words, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Do you ever stop to think about that? What does it mean and why is it important? It simply means, that word inspiration, it means breathed out by God. So we know that there were men that wrote it, that wrote it down, but we say it was inspired by God. This word of God, the Bible, did not come from the minds of men, but it originated with God. And then God moved or inspired the people to write it. And that's, why is that highly significant? Because therefore the inspiration will then lead into this idea of it being inerrant or infallible, which means there's no errors. We'll get to that in a minute. Because if God actually wrote it and God is perfect, then wouldn't that mean his word is perfect? And then if it's perfect and it's written by a perfect God, then it should have authority in our lives. And see, there's a flow. It's sort of a domino effect. So we start with inspiration. God divinely influenced the human authors of Scripture in such a way that what they wrote was the very Word of God. So yes, people like the Apostle Paul or like the prophets or Moses from the Old Testament, they wrote it down. But God inspired them. And that's highly important, highly significant. Because God divinely, in a supernatural way that only God can do, influenced them to write it out. Now, we know that they still have their own character, right? Every, every kind of writer is different. Remember we went through the Gospel of Mark? We saw how he had a unique writing style. He kind of flowed really quickly. 
Use that word immediately a lot. We saw that. How about Habakkuk? Like he had this conversation with God. It was almost like a song. I mean, it's written by different people. And so God allowed them to kind of use their personality and their character. But God inspired it. So let's not be mistaken. God wrote the Bible. All right. The Bible itself even claims that every word in every part comes from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's a great word from the Word about itself, isn't it? It gives testimony to itself. See, inspiration extends to the very words themselves, not just concepts. This is important, church, to remember. In theological terms, here's what it is. It's the verbal plenary inspiration. All right, You don't have to remember those words, but that's a term theologians will use. Verbal plenary, which means verbal, it's the very word of God, it's every word, and plenary means it's the whole thing. It's not just like the words of Jesus and everything else is eh. It's all inspired of God. So it's the verbal, it extends to every word, and it extends to all parts of Scripture and all subject matter. You see the, what I'm trying to get at? Inspiration is important because it tells us the whole word of God, every word in there, is what Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17 tells us. Another verse that deals with the inspiration Second Peter one twenty one, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Does that seem kind of clear? You see that? It says no prophecy was ever spoken by the will of man, meaning, meaning like the Apostle Paul, he didn't write down just what he thought was good that people should know. Right? It's also it's also said God superintended or God inspired. God inspired them to write it. And 2 Peter 1 says that. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a great picture. So that verse helps us to understand that even though God used people with their distinctive personalities and their writing styles, God divinely inspired the very words they wrote. And here's why it's important. A correct view of the word leads to a correct view of God. Isn't that kind of common sense, though? I mean, when you meet somebody and you get to know them, really, how do you get to know them best? Yes, by their actions, but by the things they say. You get to learn their personality, their character. Don't you get to learn what's important to somebody as you get to talk to them more and more? As you hear the words they speak, you follow me? So that's why we say the very word of God, the words he spoke, are inspired And therefore, we recognize how important that is. Because if we are to have a correct view of God, the God of the universe, we need to have a correct view of his word. You see that? It's really important. So how we treat the word of God will inevitably and invariably influence what we think of God. So if you think the Bible is kind of just some ancient text that's not really applicable today and written by men and it's it's full of errors and all that, then what kind of view of God are you going to have? Not a very high one, right? 
Well, that's why we say we, that we are to have a high view of the Word of God because it's His very Word. So if God is perfect, then His Word is perfect, and therefore we can trust it. Because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and completely perfect, His Word will, by its very nature, have the same characteristics. You follow me? Okay, we're going to keep this in the context, and we're going to keep moving. Church, because this is important. We're talking all about the Bible. This is where our story comes from. Before we get to meet all the characters and we look at God himself and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in us and angels and demons and then the problem of sin and salvation and the church and then the end times, we have to say, wait, where does it all come from? How do we know these things? Are there just some books floating around that we say, well, I I guess we get it from all these different ideas. You see, church, that's what happens in a pluralistic, relativistic society, isn't it? People just say, I kind of like these things from the Bible. I'll take that. And I like stuff from these other religions. Or I like what my friend Bob says. So I'm going to add that to my kind of my faith system. And therefore, I put it all together. And yep, me and God, we're good. I got it figured out. But what we're saying is the word of God that we have that's been passed down to us, which we're going to look at in a second. It's not just somebody's writing about God. It's the actual word of God. Can we just sit on that for a second? It's the actual Word of God. And if we believe that it's inspired, that it is the Word of God, then everything flows from that. I can get an amen from somebody, right? Thank you, brother. I know. I know. Thank you. Okay. Let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. So we know we're talking about inspiration. That's an important doctrine of the Christian church, that God inspired the writers. Okay? So it's the very Word of God. Uh, Number two, how about inerrancy or infallibility? Those those fancy words simply mean this. We believe that the Bible has no errors. Infallible, which means it is there's no errors, no mistakes. But here is a very clear um, distinction, okay? And that second line there. No errors in the original manuscripts only. Let's park there for a second. And uh, you'll see it in, in, in our statement of faith, and, and most churches, they should have this. Because what we're saying is this, church. We'll talk about this for a second. That... The idea of inerrancy, that there's actually no flaws, no errors whatsoever, only applies to what we call the original autographs or the original manuscripts. So just picture at that point in time, when God inspired Paul to write the book of Romans, that very first copy of parchment, whatever he wrote it on, right, as he was writing, and it said in Second Peter that, that the Holy Spirit moved him to do it, that original document, which we no longer have, that is perfect. It is uh, inerrant and infallible. That's why we say in the original manuscripts only. Because what happens after that very first copy? Then what happens? How, how do we get our copies today? People copy it. Scribes. You've heard about them, right? Scribes of the Old Testament. People in the New Testament. Over thousands of years. Thousands of people, humans, and we're not perfect, right? I dare say raise your hand if you're perfect, right? I have to do that. So there are going to be what we call scribal errors or errors of, from being copied, okay? So that's why we can only say that, that the Bible doesn't give that idea of inerrancy or infallibility to every single translation or every single copy. It's the original manuscript as God intended it. Because after that, it's just been copied. It's been copied. But here's the thing. 
99% of the manuscripts that we have, the ancient texts that point us back to those original ones, like the copies and the copies of the copies, they all, 99% of them, agree. Which means that those copies of the scripture that we have from scribes, from monks, from rabbis, from, let's say, the 15th century, like the 1400s, those manuscripts agree with those from the 3rd century, going back 1,200 years. Do you see that? That means that they agree. So the only kind of differences that we know of, archaeologists, those that study, bibliologists that study this, that look at the ancient texts and all those that are found, remember the Dead Sea Scrolls, helped to kind of put an exclamation point on this as well. The idea is that there's only minor differences. They're not errors. And let's make that distinction. And you know what the differences normally are? Punctuation. Minor grammatical things, word order, things out of order. Those things happen when fallible humans make copies. Do you ever sort of play that telephone game? You know, where you say something and it gets down the line, it's a completely different story. That didn't happen with the Bible, but there's little minor differences, not errors. And so here's what's important about that. No important theological issue or matter of faith is different. In all of the copies and copies and copies that we have of that original, the original manuscripts, 99% of that agree and that other 1% are minor differences, punctuation, grammar, word order, things like that. So it does not change what we know about Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith. All of the important theological matters of Scripture are intact And do not lose any of its meaning or value or importance. Are you with me? That's a really important doctrine of the Christian church. And even if there's any seemingly difficult discrepancies, if you go online, you start searching this stuff, right? Which you probably have at some point. People put all kinds of stuff on there. You know, it's very possible that if there's any kind of discrepancy, not error. Remember, not error. Because we're saying it's inerrant and infallible. Any kind of discrepancy... Perhaps we just haven't come across the solution yet. I'll give you an example. I think it was back in the early part of the the 20th century, maybe the early 1900s, maybe a little bit earlier than that. um, There were people that would say, well, the Bible has an error because in the Old Testament it talks about this group of people, the Hittites. You read the Old Testament and learn about the Hittites. They're the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Amalekites, and all the ites, right? And so... For a longest time, we had no archaeological evidence of this people called the Hittites ever. And so for for a long time, people would look at that and say, well, the Bible is wrong. And then the whole thing is wrong. We'll throw it out. There's no such thing as the people of the Hittites. But then it was either in the late 1800s or early 1900s. Guess what uh, archaeologists found? They found evidence a little bit, a little bit of this group of people called the Hittites. All of a sudden, they discovered cities and scrolls and manuscripts, and all of a sudden, they're like, "Yeah, there was this great people group called the Hittites." You see, so it's not like all the evidence was given just at once. Sometimes these things we discover. How about the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls really showed us in its accuracy how all the manuscripts that we've had from like the 300s, like just a couple hundred years after Christ like the copies of the, the, the friends of Jesus and his disciples and their copies, they all agree. Isn't that great? That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls like, was such a big thing. Because they found these ancient manuscripts that were protected. They said, look, this matches with 
what we thought about a thousand years ago and even beyond that. It all matches up. So, Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Proverbs 30. Every word of God proves true. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That means it's eternal. The word of God will always stand true. This side of heaven and into eternity. That's why we can believe it, see? And so therefore we have these Psalms and Proverbs that speak to it as well. But we know that even just like practically speaking, all of the ancient manuscripts that have been discovered over the past 2,000 years and beyond, they all agree. And any minor differences are because scribes, maybe they put a word in a different spot or they put maybe a comma instead of a period. None of it ever changes those important matters of theology and faith and practice. Really important that we understand that. So we believe that the Bible is inspired. It's the very word of God that is inerrant and infallible in the original manuscripts only. But yet we can still trust what you have in your lap today or on your laptop, right? Either way, you can trust it. It's all perfect. And we say the whole thing. Plenary. Man, we used that word before, the whole thing. Why? Because what we're saying is it's not just the words of Jesus or the Gospels that are perfect and true and trustworthy. It's also the history in the book of Acts or, or the law back in the Old Testament. We're saying it's all inspired by God and it's all infallible. Okay? Because if God is perfect, then his word would also be. What's the implication for us? We take it all as a whole. So many times, church, we do it as well. We read something in the Bible, we say, I don't like that. That doesn't sit well with me. That, there's got to be something wrong with that. And then we don't try to apply it or incorporate it into our lives. We're saying we take the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God, all the history, all of the poetry, all of the biography, all of that. Genesis to Revelation. It's all the Word of God. We cannot pick and choose. And if it's infallible and there's no error in it all, then we have to heed it all. Didn't James tell us to be not just hearers of the Word, but what? Doers of the Word. And therefore it has authority in our lives. Because if it's inspired and it's inerrant, then of course it is supposed to have authority in our lives. The Bible is to have greater authority than any human authority, any human tradition, or any human opinion. You see that? The Bible in our lives, church, as Christians, is to have greater place of authority than any human authority, human tradition, or human opinion. Back in the Reformation in the 1500s, we did a whole series on that. We got this great term, sola scriptura. Did you ever hear that? I mean, scripture alone, the Bible alone, is our sole rule of authority on matters of faith and practice. See that? Sola scriptura. Remember Martin Luther? Martin Luther and the Great Reformation. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. And so that's what we get. So the inspiration leads to this idea of inerrancy, this belief. And then, of course, it leads to authority. Now, how about the canon? How about we talk about that, the canon of Scripture? Did you ever hear about that? What is the canon? It simply means what we're saying is the 66 books of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that it is the canon of Scripture. It is all the Scripture that God wanted us to have. It's all inspired, 
all 66 books. And that is what we have. So the 66 books you have in your Bible, we say are the inspired word of God. So that term canon is used to describe that. All the books that are divinely inspired and therefore belong in the Bible are the only authority in matters of faith and practice. Okay? How did we get it? How do we get it? How do we get those 66 books? All right? So it was a process conducted first, of course, by Jewish rabbis and scholars. Doesn't the Old Testament come first? So way back when, thousands of years ago, the Jewish rabbis and scholars, they held the word of God in high esteem. And so they went to great lengths to protect it and to copy it perfectly. All right. So then, of course, later by the early Christians, they did the same thing. But ultimately, church, it was God who decided what books belonged in the Bible canon. A book, this is important. Please listen to this. A book of Scripture belonged in the canon from the moment God inspired its writing. So we're not saying that just men decided what's in it, because that's a big problem that many unbelievers have, right? Like, okay, who decided that this gets in there? Well, we say God decided. If God inspired it, we know God decided about these 66 books, and then he just inspired the men. He moved the people, the early church fathers, the early Jewish rabbis, to discover what he already knew. That's what God does with us, doesn't it? Doesn't he have a plan already? God doesn't wait for us to make a plan and say, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I should have thought of that. God's already working. Didn't we learn that from Habakkuk? He's already in the work, so God was inspiring it before he even gave Paul the pen to write it. We say that God, God decided what books belong in the Bible. It was simply a matter of God convincing his human followers which books should be included. So he worked through church leaders and councils. If you look at church history, you're going to read a lot about different councils. The Council of Laodicea, the Council of uh, Nicaea, the Council of Trent. All these different councils, you know what they were? They were groups of Christian leaders that got together in the early days of the church, right? First century, second century, third century to say, wait, which books are inspired and infallible? And there was some criteria that they used. So these early church councils had to determine this, but God was leading them every step of the way. So the Old Testament, of course, already determined by the Jewish rabbis. How about the New Testament councils? There was one in A.D. 170, one in A.D. 363, and finally one in A.D. 397. So about the year 400 A.D., we had the Bible as you see it now. That's how far back it goes, if you didn't know. And I think that's important, right? Lots of historical data. Early church leaders that were disciples of the apostles recognized the books. Let me give you some criteria, church. This is important. So how did these early church leaders and the rabbis before them for the Old Testament, how did they decide? Like, what were their their qualifications? When there were all these letters written by people, oh, I knew Jesus, I saw Jesus, I know the Apostle Paul. How did they decide which ones go in the book? Remember, God decided first. But how did God give them that knowledge and wisdom to figure out what God already knew? Okay? Here it is. How about these things? These were like the basic five things that the early church councils used to determine. It said, was the author, number one, a prophet or an apostle or have a close connection with an apostle? That's important. Did the writer perform miracles to authorize the message? Was the book already being accepted by the churches? That's important. Which books, listen, were already circulating around? Or maybe all the churches around Ephesus and and all those uh, Philippians, the churches in Philippi, all that. 
Like they would say, which which books, which letters are already accepted? Because maybe the writer sent it, like Paul sent the letter, and then he goes and he backs it up and he shows up at the church. I would say that's a good criteria, right? So they use that. How about number four? Did the book contain consistent doctrine and orthodox teaching? Like, did a book come along and say something completely different about Jesus? Well, if all these other books were saying this, and these are all, um, you know, these are all protected, and these are all authorized, and this one is saying something different, then this is outside of inspired word. And finally, did the book reveal the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit? Was it being used to change people's lives? You put all these things together, God used these criteria and others to move those early church leaders to decide what those 66 books were, okay? But I remember, the church did not determine the canon. It was God and God alone who determined which books belonged in the Bible, all right? Really important. God in his sovereignty brought the early church to the recognition of the books he already inspired. Can I say that one more time? God, in his sovereignty, which means he's all-knowing, all-powerful, he brought the early church leaders to the recognition of the books he already inspired. Now, how about the Catholic Bible? Maybe many of you here came out of uh, the Catholic Church, and maybe you have one at your home still, and that's been a source of confusion for you. Well, is the Catholic Bible the same as the one that we have? No, it's not. There are additional books. Did you know that? So the Protestant Bible, remember the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s of Martin Luther, he comes along and he wants to make some reforms to the only church that ever existed up to that point, the Catholic Church, the Universal Church. And he says, we're doing some things wrong. We're, we're getting away from Scripture. Sola Scriptura. It's Scripture alone, not all these man-made things and selling indulgences and all these things. And what happened was, Martin Luther comes along and says, Sola Scriptura, it's, it's that alone. So the Catholic church, they had added seven other books to the Old Testament, not the New Testament. We have the same New Testament books, seven other books, and the Catholic Bible has additions to the books of Esther and Daniel. Did you know that? There's this addition to Daniel, I think it's called Bell and the Dragon. But here's what we say, church, from Martin Luther going forward, we say these books are not inspired. Why? Because they do not pass the test of that other criteria, okay? There may be some things you can learn. Book of like the Maccabees. You ever hear about that? For a second, Maccabees. We call that the Apocrypha. Apocrypha means secret writing, hidden writing, writing that is not part of the canon. The Catholic Bible has it in there. So we're saying that the Bible that we are talking about is the Protestant Bible, starting from the 1500s, that does not include those additional seven books because they were never... They were never agreed upon by the council, the early church leaders, right after Christ's death. Those first generations went through that criteria. They said, these books do not measure up, and we are not going to include them. Hey, we can read them and maybe learn some history and things, but they're not inspired. Do you see the major difference? So therefore, if it's not inspired, then we do not look to them as an authority on the matter of faith and how we practice that faith. Really important, okay? So they have seven extra books to the Old Testament called the Apocrypha. They have other uh, additional writings in Daniel and Esther, okay? It was not accepted by the Jewish rabbis, to add to the Old Testament, nor the early church leaders. You see that? 
So it was the, the Jewish rabbis who confirmed the Old Testament. They said, no, these books aren't added. And then, of course, the, new t- the uh, early church leaders, right, the New Testament era. Here's what happened. There was this guy named Jerome. Did you ever hear of him? He was a priest in the Catholic Church. A little bit of church history here. I love church history. This guy, Jerome, they called him St. Jerome. He was a well-known Catholic um, scholar and theologian and priest. And so Rome, being the head of the Catholic Church at the time, said, Jerome, you're our guy. We want you to translate the Bible into Latin because we want to do all our masses in Latin. That's called the Latin Vulgate. That word vulgar, vulgate, it's like common language. We want you to transfer it. We want you to translate it into Latin. Yeah, because everybody spoke Latin? I don't know. Anyway, that's what Jerome did. And he was under great pressure by uh, the Roman leaders and authorities. And they said, you know what? We want those extra books in there. But do you know that Jerome himself told the leaders in Rome, uh, I don't think they qualify as inspired scripture. And Rome said, put it in anyway. So he was under their authority, so he did. And so the Catholic Bible that exists today, it comes directly from that Latin Vulgate, which was translated by this guy, Jerome, into Latin, okay, from the original Hebrew languages. And so it includes these other books. And so that's important because many of us, or maybe your friends, come out of the Catholic faith or go to the Catholic Church, and so if they ever ask you, you know, yes, there is a difference, and it's an important difference. And here's then where I go with that. We also say the canon, or these 66 books, is a closed canon. Did you ever hear that? That's an important doctrine of the church, too. We say it's closed, which means there's no new revelation from God. We are not going to now discover a new book, right, and say, okay, now there's 67 books. Because God has already decided, right, right after the death of Christ, when all the books are written, when Revelation was finally written by the Apostle John, we say that the canon is now closed. Well, well, but pastor, what if we, like, what if archaeologists discover something? We say, well, it is not inspired because we believe it's not going to fill all those criteria because God would have put it in there already. That canon is closed. Let me share a scripture with you, right? And that's important. Jude 1, 3. I think there's only one chapter, but anyway, Jude 3, verse 3. Beloved, did you ever read the book of Jude? Here's what it says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you, about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to listen, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is one of the last books of the Bible written before Revelation. Actually, it comes in the Bible before Revelation, doesn't it? Jude and Revelation. And so right here in Jude, Jude is saying, hey, we need to contend to this faith. The faith means everything written and given by God. That's what that word there means, faith. That was given to us once and for all. So what are the application of that and the, and the uh, implications for us? Well, if you have people today, church leaders, that say, well, I'm an apostle like the Apostle Paul, and I have a word of God for you today, and God told me this today, then what they're basically saying, whether they admit it or not, they're saying their word is on the same level of authority as the Bible. That's what that means. Even if it's not intended, that's what it means. So there is no new what we call special revelation. See, there's general revelation. That's God reveals himself in nature outside. Special revelation is the word he gave to the prophets and the word that he gives us, the Bible. It's his special revelation. We say there is no more of that. So people cannot add 
to it or take away from it. We are not removing any of the 66 books and we are not adding to it. There is no longer any special revelation. Why is that important? Say, listen, church, everything God wanted us to know, you with me, is in that book. There's nothing special that any person, man or woman, can tell you and say, God told me this. Now, if they say that and it's scriptural, fine, they're just encouraging you. That's a gift of exhortation, right? It could be called the gift of prophecy. Prophecy simply meaning speaking the word of God, if it already exists. You see what I'm talking about? So that's one of the implications. Here's something else. How about translations? Do you ever think about that? You go into the, the, the Bible bookstore and you're just like, why are there like 103 different translations? What does this mean? Very simply, let me talk about this first before I, I mention a few of them. We talk about inspiration, right? There's also this key doctrine of preservation. So God inspired those original autographs, the original copies of Scripture. And then, of course, they were copied, copied, and there were copies and copies and copies by the early scribes and the rabbis and the monks and all that, right? And that's important. But if God went, listen, church, if God went to such great lengths to give us his word, wouldn't he surely also take the steps necessary to preserve that word unchanged? Does that not make sense? That if God went out of his way to give us his inspired word through his writers, wouldn't he then preserve it throughout the centuries and throughout the millennia? So he preserved it. That's called the doctrine of preservation. It was inspired by God and then preserved by God. But see where it always comes from God? Do you see that? You tracking with me? We're almost done for today. So it was inspired and then preserved. So the Old Testament, I think you'll find this interesting. The Hebrew scriptures were painstakingly copied by Jewish scribes. Listen to this, church. The Jewish scribes had this deep reverence for the word of God. They had strict rules for copying it. They had strict rules on the type of parchment they used, the size of the columns when they wrote it, the kind of ink they used, the spacing of the words. They were all prescribed. They had all these rules and regulations on how to copy it. Why? To ensure that one copy was the same as the other. Remember, they didn't have the printing press yet. They couldn't just go to Staples and make copies, right? So they were actually men that were writing it out, and they were done with it, and then somebody else said, okay, give me that copy, and they would write it. And they were meticulous about it. They could not write anything from memory that was expressly forbidden. And the lines, the words, even the individual letters were methodically counted as a means of double-checking. Can you imagine that? Let's say over years and years and years and decades, a scribe copies a whole book of the Bible and gives it to his partner. The partner's going to count them up and make sure there's 8,302 words in his and then the one he got it from. So we don't think about that. God is superintending all of that, but he moved the people to have such high reverence for the word. That's how they did it. How about the New Testament? The same way. There are thousands of Greek texts that we do have, some of them dating back to as early as A.D. 117, just a few years after Revelation was finally written by John and the canon was closed, that we do have manuscripts from that far back not just a couple hundred years ago, from that far back. 
How about the translations, though? If it was inspired, and then we say that that inspiration was preserved, the Bible was preserved, how about the translation? Simply think about this. Groups of people get together, and they say, we're going to translate the Bible. If you ever look at your Bible, I encourage you to do this when you go home, look at your Bible, look at the beginning pages, and see, like, what group of people translated it. It's probably a group with a name, a group of people. And, and it was all these scholars, men and women alike, got together. And over the course of many years, all their scholarly efforts and looking at all these, these old documents said, we're going to translate it. Now, there's different ways to translate it. There's different methods, right? But it's an interpretive process. Choices have to be made. Think about this. How many of you speak more than one language? You can raise your hand. Many of you, right? You know that there's not always word for word match up, Right? It's like you have a word like, you know, you have a word for love, and it's like we might have one word, and, and the other language has like five words. So if somebody's translating and they see the word love, they're like, wait, well, which word am I using? If I'm translating it into my language. See, all along the process, think about it, it makes sense, right? That a translator has to make choices when you're going from one language to another because it's not perfect A to A, B to B. And so sometimes committees get together and they have what's called a dynamic equivalent, which means they're doing thought to thought. Well, let's not get concerned with word to word. We want it to flow and read nice. So let's just look at the actual thought of this paragraph or this sentence and we'll put it together thought by thought. That's called dynamic equivalence. You have things like the NIV or the NLT, New Living Translation or like that. How about word for word, formal equivalence? Not thought to thought, word to word, where it's really all about getting the words right. Even if it reads a little choppy, we're going to just, we're going to make sure that we are going word for word. So that would be versions like the King James Version, the New King James, the ESV, which we use here often, the NASB, which I highly recommend. The NASB is great for studying. It doesn't read as smoothly as the ESV, but still, it was translated with that method in mind that it was word for word. See the importance? And then you have translations which aren't a translation at all, like the message, which is a paraphrase. Did you know that? The message written by Eugene Peterson, which can be very helpful in devotionals, it is not a translation of the Bible. It's a paraphrase made by one person. All the other translations are made by dozens and dozens of scholars that get together and they have accountability. When you have one person doing it, there's no accountability. So we can't say that's a translation. It's a paraphrase. There's nothing wrong with that. Just recognize how you're using it in your, devo- in your studies. Does that make sense? That's really important because it can be very beautiful and it'd be great to help us in our devotional times. But if you're trying to study a passage of Scripture... Do not use paraphrased wordings, okay? There's many translations out there, but we know we have to kind of dig a little deep, say, who did it? Look at the beginning of your Bible. Is it word for word, thought for thought, and then use it accordingly, okay? Almost done. I said that about 15 minutes ago. I know. But this is important stuff, church. I I am almost done here. I'm going to end with this this verse, these verses from Nehemiah, which I think would be a great way to end. Um interpretation. So I talked about translation. How do you interpret it? Can't we just say, oh, it means this to me? Well, it means this to me. No, I think it means this. That's not really Bible study when you get around and say, what does it mean to you? Oh, that's good. What does it mean to you? Oh, that's good. 
How do we interpret it? There's two main ways, church. This is highly important. Listen. There is what's called the allegorical method. is when you take something in Scripture and say, well, it can't mean just what it says. There's got to be a higher spiritual meaning. For instance, like when the Old Testament talks about the different gates that were in the wall that surrounded Jerusalem, there was the water gate and the fish gate and the eastern gate. They must have spiritual significance. Maybe the, the, the fish gate was uh, the one that's significant of how we should go and evangelize because we're called to be fishers of men. You know, the fish gate was called the fish gate because that's where they brought the fish in. Okay, so we're not going to read spiritual things into things that aren't there. That's allegorizing it. It's taking something and saying it must have a higher spiritual meaning. Or there's the other one, which is the literal, grammatical, historical method, or just call it the plain method. Believing that the Bible was written, God is not the author of confusion. He wrote it so we would understand it. And if it says it, it means it. In a literal sense, in the grammatical sense, in the historical sense. So if it says it there, we're going to take it at its word. And you know what? Church, if you remember nothing else, can you remember this? That makes all the difference. We believe it's inspired. We have to start with that. It's infallible in the original autographs. It's got authority. How you interpret it makes all the difference. And you have to have what's called a consistent hermeneutic. There's another theological word. Hermeneutic means how you're, you're interpreting the Bible, simply, okay? And so, how are you interpreting it? Are you taking it literally? This is what God said, and we're going to do this? Or is it more figurative or allegorical? Like, well, I must have some other meaning. Because if you're consistent in one or the other, what's going to happen is it's going to take you down a road that was not meant to be. Now, I would say most evangelicals today, most Christian churches... They stick mostly to literal rendering. But when it comes to things like prophecy, like what's going to happen in the end, or even something significant like the Abrahamic covenant, then they start to allegorize and say, well, that can't really mean like it's still true. Or the revelation, like a thousand years, it probably just means a long time. See, so what a lot of Christians will do, a lot of scholars too, they'll say, we're going to take it all literal except like this part, because that doesn't make sense. So that's got to have some kind of spiritual, like symbolic meaning. But what I believe in church, what we believe here, what you're going to hear me preach, is a consistent literal hermeneutic, which means from Genesis to Revelation, it's literal. And so I believe if you're consistent, then you're going to come, like a, like, like a, like a domino effect, you're going to come to certain uh, understandings. And you're going to see that flow throughout our story. Okay? How to read it. You read it as a story, but read it in context. You study the Bible. Know where what you're reading fits into the story. Don't ever separate the Word of God from God. Let's say that again. Don't ever separate His Word from Him, the one who said it and wrote it. Let's not separate the two. It's His words. A correct view of Scripture leads a correct view of God. Where to start? If you've never read the Bible, I mean, you start anywhere and God will use it. I have some suggestions. In the Old Testament, start at the beginning, Genesis and Exodus. You get so much of the backstory. Read Genesis and Exodus. When you go to the New Testament, read the Gospel of John. John talks so much about salvation by grace through faith. It talks so much about salvation and where that comes from. There's so much in there. Start with the Gospel of John. How about the book of Acts to get a little bit of history of the church? And maybe Ephesians. Ephesians is sort of a smaller version of Romans. Paul talks about all his theological importance. Some good ideas. You know, um, 
One quick thing about the interpretation. I talked about literal, grammatical, talked about allegorical. Do you know that um, there were these, these two um, churches, these two schools of thought way back in the day, just right after, like during the time of the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. Remember, remember we went through the book of Acts and there was this church of Antioch? The church of Antioch is like where Paul and Barnabas started their missionary journeys. Well, that had all the apostolic authority because the apostles were teaching there. You know what they taught? We know from historical records, the literal translation of the Bible. And for about two, three hundred years, that's what ruled. And then at about the four hundreds or so, there was another school of thought that started actual schools in Alexandria, Egypt, the top of Egypt. There's a great library there, the Alexandrian Library. It burned down years later, but that teaching there, they taught the allegorical method. And there was a guy named Augustine. Did you ever hear of him? He wrote a book called The City of God, a very famous book. And that was the first one that really started to espouse that. He came out of that Alexandrian school. And unfortunately, that happened for about a thousand years, a little bit more. And you know who came along in about the 1500s? Martin Luther. And God used him to say, wait, I think we've gotten off track. You know, they called it the Dark Ages for a reason, many reasons. And he started to get it back on track. Let's take the literal interpretation. Now, he didn't interpret all of it literally, so we're sort of still reforming in that sense. But see, that's important to know your church history and understand where all that comes from. So, it was all put together by God, inspired by him. And here is this passage I'm going to leave with you from Nehemiah. It's a long passage. I'll read it quick. But can I just tell you why this is important? Nehemiah chapter 8. Go back and read it sometime. I'm going to give you a few of the verses. If you remember from the history of, of the people, the Jewish people, you remember this cycle I talked about? And this is the last thing. Just give me two more minutes of your time, church. Uh, we're all hungry. I'm hungry too. There's soup today. There's sandwiches. It's good, right? We need that spiritual food. Here's the, the home stretch. So you remember the people of Israel, they had this terrible cycle where they were disobedient to God. And then God judged them. They cried out. They repented and God forgave them. And the cycle happened over and over. Remember? So you remember what happened? The kingdom got divided. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where uh, Habakkuk was writing out of, the southern kingdom of Judah. They both, both sets of the kingdoms got taken into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. And then about 100, 200 years later, not too much longer, the southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes, were taken in exile by the big bad Babylonians. We talked about that in Habakkuk, right? So, of course, after being in exile for about 70 years, they were called back to their homeland. And God orchestrated everything so they could do that. Do you remember Nehemiah was called back to start building? Remember that? And building the wall and, and rebuilding the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Then there was this guy named Ezra. There's a book, Ezra, Nehemiah. A lot of scholars think it's all one book because they go together. Ezra came in. Ezra was a priest. A priest like a Jewish rabbi, that kind of priest, okay? This is way back then. And here's what it says about Nehemiah. When they finally got back into their land, can you imagine being away from their homeland, Jerusalem, for so long? You know what? They were craving the word of God because they hadn't had it. So here's what it said, Nehemiah 8. All the, This is when they came back. All the people gathered as one into the square before the water gate. And just follow along. They told Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. That's the Bible they had at the time. That the Lord had commanded Israel. So, 
Ezra, the priest, he brought that law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand, on the first day of the seventh month. He read it, he read from it, facing the square, from early morning till midday, that's about six hours, he read the Bible, okay, six hours, in the presence of the men and women, all those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They didn't have the book of the law for so many years, and now they're listening for six hours. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above all the people. He was on a platform. He opened it. All the people stood. So they all stood up when he started reading the Bible. They couldn't wait to hear it. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Later on in verse 13, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that all the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go to the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olives and myrtle and palm and other leafy trees and make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves. Why do I read that obscure passage? Church, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Word of God. And they truly, truly desired it. So much so that they stood for six hours. And they listened to it read. And they came, and here's the thing. They came back the next day. And they said, can you teach us some more? And they said, we heard, it, we, we, we read in there something about building booths. Let's do that. You know what that means, church? It means they heard of the word of God and they were called to action. See, that's what we're called to do. We don't just say, oh, these are good facts about how that we got the Bible. It's all important because it is to move us to action. And it will introduce us, as we talk next week, about the God himself who wrote that Bible. So, for the Christian, the Bible is life itself. Its pages are filled with the very spirit of God. Revealing his heart and mind to us. Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Does that not tell us that the word of God is alive? It's inspired. It's alive. And God is using it, using it through his Holy Spirit to change us and transform us. Church, that's why it's important. So we gather around this table in our closing moments together to remember what God 